What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 10 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Loveland, it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this episode of the ERRR. This episode we're talking to Dr Catherine Scott. Catherine taught art and techniques in high schools and primary schools before training as a school psychologist. She went on to complete a PhD in psychology at Macquarie University and has taught psychology and research methods to a variety of students at the undergraduate and graduate levels. These include those studying teaching, clinical psychology, nursing, school counselling, physiotherapy, speech and occupational therapy. She has taught in several Australian universities and overseas. Catherine was State President of the Victorian branch of the Australian College of Educators and served as Chair of the ACE National Council and member of the ACE Board. She is also a registered psychologist. Catherine nominated two articles to form the basis of this ERRR discussion. The first is entitled Meta Memory and Successful Learning, and the second is the chapter on memory from Catherine's excellent book, Learn to Teach, Teach to Learn. Catherine is a generalist, and as such, the discussion in this podcast is very wide ranging, touching on numerous topics from memory to mindfulness to such questions as what is meant by questioning for understanding, as well as What exactly is depth in learning? There's an acronym that's thrown around a fair bit in the following interview, LTP. We do define it in our discussion, but only about once we're halfway through. LTP is a unit in the Masters of Teaching at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education, and its full name was Learners, Teachers and Pedagogy. Catherine taught this unit to the majority of the attendees to the ERRR for this episode and, as such, She refers to it a number of times in order to ground some of the discussed theories in attendees' lived experience. It's also worth noting and acknowledging that Catherine was instrumental in getting the ERRR podcast off the ground and helped me to get in touch with Steve Dinham, Tom Bennett, Jennifer Stevenson and Pamela Snow. So we have Catherine to thank for bringing these education changemakers into the education research reading room. So without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 10 of the ERRR with Catherine Scott. Catherine Scott, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Why, thank you for inviting me, Ollie. It's a pleasure. Um, the first question we usually ask people is, if you're at a party and you meet someone, they say, hi, Catherine, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Stuff. Stuff. Okay, fair enough. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your journey to this point of you now doing stuff. Oh, it's a long one. Um, I did psychology at Sydney Uni, thought I was going to be a psychologist, pure and simple. Hello, swiggle around here. Um, and But to keep myself entertained, I went to East Sydney Tech and did printmaking and design, and as a consequence of, the consequences of that, ended up being an art and design teacher. But psychology called me back and I trained as a school counsellor. And while I was on maternity leave with number three, I decided that I needed to know more about 
the psychology of kids in the middle years. So I started some study and ended up at Macquarie University where I did my PhD and never went back to schools except, you know, visiting purposes. What was that PhD focusing on? Um, it was a developmental psych PhD. Okay. Cool. It was about making decisions in the con- in the context of changing social values. Sounds like something that people have to do at school lots. Well, it's a develop was a developmental lifespan development, mm. so it wasn't wasn't kids, so it was grown ups. I did my master's honours on kids, preschool kids. Got it. Got it. Um, you have referred to yourself as a generalist in the past, mm-hmm. um, and when we were kind of discussing the topic of tonight's discussion, um, there was a bit of back and forth. Forth, but you were you were pretty confident that meta memory was an important thing for us to focus on tonight. Uh, why was that? There's a whole lot of stuff that all sort of cycles in on the idea that people should be much as possible self-aware. Okay all the stuff about emotional intelligence and all that sort of thing and social-emotional learning, they're all about making people aware of themselves and how they function. One of the advantages of being self-aware is it makes you other-aware. The more you know about yourself, um, the more you tend to be able to know and understand about other people. So self-awareness is good. And in, t- in terms of anything you're trying to do, awareness of how you're doing the task, how you're going and all that kind of thing helps you do it better. Live the examined life. Indeed. When did you first start to examine this examined life kind of a, a topic? When you were at school and teaching students yourself, uh, was this self-awareness um, for students something that was on your mind or is it some, a realisation you came to later on? I think it's stuff that I came to later on. Um, the teaching I did was pretty intuitive, really. Um, it wasn't informed by anything much other than having been raised by a teacher um, and just sort of generally having a sympathetic feel for the kids. I actually found my reference from my first job, which I'd never looked at until a little while ago, and I pulled it out and it said that I had genuine interest and concern for the kids. I thought, oh, they spotted that then. Okay. Great. So, so what is this meta-memory thing? Uh, can, can we kind of define it in any more detail other than a bit of a self-awareness about yourself? Yeah, sure. Meta, I mean, meta-anything. Meta means to stand above. Okay. So meta-memory is a subclass of metacognition. So metacognition is thinking about thinking. Meta-memory is thinking about memory and knowing about memory. It's divided into a number of different subcategories, like procedural Meta-memory is knowing about how memory works, but there's other things to do with knowing um, the content of your memory and and all that sort of thing. So it's really it's in the in that textbook chapter thing in more detail. But it's knowing it's knowing declarative knowledge about memory is knowing stuff the kind of thing I've taught you those that I've taught most of you. Um, you know how sh- short-term memory or working memory and its limits. And all that kind of thing that you, and when you know how your memory works and you know things like your working memory is limited, if you clog it up with stuff when you're trying to study, it's not going to go through into long term memory. It's knowing about strategies, you know, what strategies work, and people that understand themselves know, have a better chance of using what they know to optimize their own learning. 
Is this something that we can test for? Oh, yeah. You can sort of um, ask kids how much they know about, you know, the structure of memory and the memory processes. That's fairly easy. You can ask them like we did. Did you actually get to do that talk to the kids in the class thing when you were doing LTP? Uh, talking, so this is at interviewing the Melbourne Graduate School of Education in master yeah. teaching. Uh, I believe there was a, an activity where we spoke to students about the nature of learning. Yeah, yeah no, you had to you had to ask your cooperating teacher for a student who was doing well and a student that wasn't doing well, and you you asked them some standard questions about how they study and what techniques they they learn they'd use and that kind of thing. And there was when we analysed the data, and that was the of that small, that short paper that I sent, uh, the differences between the kids that were doing well and the kids that weren't doing well was stark. Couldn't it just be the other way around, though? Those who are high achieving and, and have a tendency to learn more, meta-memory is just one of those extra things that they've learned more about? No, no. I mean, for instance, James Flynn, the sainted James Flynn, has done some analysis and he's basically shown that kids or people that use um, intelligent effort in the pursuit of their study, which is not just the rote learning stuff, but intelligent effort applied to study, have an advantage equivalent to seven or eight IQ points. Okay. Mm. So someone who's got an IQ of 97 can perform like someone with an IQ, say, 105, 106, if they apply intelligent effort. It's the reason why girls do better than boys in school, because they tend to be, um, you know, using intelligent effort. And it's the reason why Asian kids do better. Yeah, because they are using intelligent effort. Yes. Ben speaking. I was just wondering when you're talking about um, kids who do better having this knowledge, you said there's two types of meta memory. There's declarative. Well, there's four types, but we don't want to go into too much detail. Oh, okay. It's in the chapter if people want to know more. True. I think that that's a, the article mentioned the main ones was it procedural Yes. and then declarative. Mm. So one was like knowledge and then the other one was knowing how it works. Yes. What in it most, is and how it works, yeah. In most cases, are these kids who have this, is it something that you think they've kind of worked out how it works just from that being self-aware and being inquiring and being inquisitive? Or do they know facts like I can, know, you know, working memory holds seven things or working memory is this, this and this? Or is it something that they've kind of learnt through observing their own processes of learning? Um, people tend not to be very good at learning the right lessons from observation. So in terms of figuring out how memory is structured, you're not going to know that unless somebody teaches it to you. No seven-year-old is suddenly re going to rediscover uh, working memory, etc., etc. And it goes with, it goes with pr procedures to um, kids that are just left to their own devices. They figure out that... They figure out the rote learning stuff. They figure out that repetition allows you to hold something in your memory. I remember my younger, my number four, when she was in the car, sort of chanting something quietly to herself. And she was five at the time, and she'd figured out that if she wanted to remember whatever this thing was, I can't remember, I was driving it at school, so it would have been something to do with school. So what she had to do was chant it over and over. But the more sophisticated stuff, people don't tend to figure out unless they've been taught it at school or they've had somebody model it for them. I mean, parents who practice, remember the um, dialogic teaching that I talked about? Um, 
that's about basically instilling the kinds of mental habits in kids. You know, that getting up, getting them talk to talk through what they're doing, getting them to answer questions about not just what but why and elaborate on their thinking. That's all developing metacognitive skills. Though that's not what um, it's not what Robin Alexander calls it, but it's basically metacognitive skills, knowing what you know, and um, you know all that sort of thing is pretty much in the same category. I'm interested a little bit in in what we're talking about in terms of transfer, because that's in a lot of ways what we're talking about. Um, something that I'm trying to work on at the moment is a a set of four PD sessions mm. uh, for teachers, and specifically in the immediate. Uh, future, the four or so teachers with whom I work in the maths department at the school that I'm working at. And I, I want to try to develop within them a greater understanding of some of these principles that were in your uh, study and that I've been learning about recently. For example, cognitive load theory, mm-hmm. uh, the spacing effect, the retrieval effect, mm-hmm. the benefits of interleaving and things like that. Um, I'm pretty confident it will be quite easy to get them to a point of declarative memory around those concepts but getting them to actually implement those practices in their classroom is another another story, I think. Mm. Uh, what what makes us think or what evidence is there to suggest that when individuals find out this stuff about metamemory, one, they apply it to their own learning and two, they apply it to, the, to their teaching? Well, depends on who you're talking about, doesn't it? I mean, for some people, they'll in- instantly see the application. They'll instantly start using it. Um, other people... It's going to be a matter of um, being led gently in the, the right direction. The The trick with getting people to improve their practice is don't try to do too much at once. Always, always, always start small. And so start off with one or two things. And you're going to have to work with these people consistently and you're going to have to try to get them to work with them. But, you know, out of this stuff, tell me some stuff that jumps out at you, okay? Can you see how this could be used? And then working on just that one or two thing and getting it so they're looking at, they're observing each other's teaching. How, how are they going to know they were su- that they're successful? The thing that people most often leave out of this kind of thing is how are we going to assess the successfulness of what we're doing? What is success going to look like? You've got to know ahead of time what success is going to look like. It's no good just going in and doing this stuff without knowing what you're aiming to do. But very, very important to get people watching each other teaching. You know, okay, in this lesson I'm going to work towards um, this. But, I mean, the dialogic teaching type techniques are very, very important and very, very useful, that getting kids to talk through. And the most important question in the universe, the ones three-year-olds learn, you know, not why, why do you think that? So we're talking now about, I guess, strategies that teachers can use in the classroom to apply um, and encourage students to use their meta-memory. What would your top three be? You've mentioned dialogic teaching and encouraging students to reflect and ask why, so then it's about questioning techniques. What else, what other strategies can we use? I would definitely talk, teach kids about the architecture of memory and explain why they think they're fantastic multitaskers, but seriously, doing their homework with the television on is just, um, you know, it's just a disaster. They really have to be prepared. I mean, a bit of music in the background maybe. You know, as long as it isn't shouty, kind of full of words music. 
but they've got to learn that they're you know that they have a limited amount of attention limited amount of space in their head and if they're filling it up with other stuff if they're fooling around with their phones while they're doing their homework it just ain't going to work for them it ain't going to work for them. So so I would definitely be, and there's lots of nice resources on the, I haven't looked for a while on the web, but the BBC site had stuff on memory and stuff for kids. That's a few years ago now. That might not still be there. But you can find, you can find kind of kid-friendly, teenager-friendly stuff, um, you know, because you're telling them not just what but why, you know. I guess I'm just sitting here reflecting on my um, grade one classroom and, some of the approaches that I take, and I guess one of the things is that, you know, I'm always telling the children, not always, but telling the children sometimes to focus, be quiet. You know, we need to be quiet because it helps us think. Um, and we, we go through that questioning process so that they tell me those understandings. But then contrary to that is when we're actually doing group work and that we are learning from each other. So making sure that they understand the way that they're learning, that there's a reason for it and there's a time and place for, for those different yeah. things. Well, I mean, the kids that come really well set up in schools are the ones whose parents practice that kind of authoritative parenting, which means explaining the rules. But parents who talk to kids about stuff, you know, it's one of the reasons why kids who've got parents who are teachers tend to be the ones that do really well in PISA and things like that because the teachers intuitively know how to talk to their own kids in ways that help them develop um, skills and strategies. So, yeah. And another thing that I recall even from your lectures back in LTP at Melbourne Graduate School of Education was about attention and culture and the cultural backgrounds that children come from and how different they can be, particularly yep. in the junior years. Um, children from more um, collectivist societies are far more kind of look outwards and is that right? And, yeah, well, and I mean, a bit more community minded and more respectful, think and listen. And I was always tinkering with LTP, so I'm not quite sure exactly what I said in each version of it, but did I talk about the way that um, in school, where schools are, uh, where schooling is typical, did you, did I talk about how right from birth kids are being prepared by their parents for school? Yeah, that parents practice, you know, they do this thing where they, where the kids are going to meet in class, so they get asked questions that the parent already knows the answer to and stuff like that, and the kids are trying to do things. Kids who come from cultures where schooling is not the norm don't have any of that, and that's the disadvantage they've got. They haven't been trained since babyhood to listen to the adults and answer questions the adult already knows the answer to and all that, all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, just throw it back at you a little way. What did I do? Let's look at the, the forgetting curve, which is really, really important, and the necessity for space practice. But there's a particular spacing according to Ebbinghaus, which is the most what what did I do with you guys to to use that principle to maximize retention of what I was trying to teach you? Not that you remembered a goddamn thing, I realise that. One of the big approaches which was very different, I guess, for me was the notion of interim assessments. And then also the opportunity to reflect on that at the end of the course as well. So there was this, it was constant assessment and reflection, um, discussion as well. Yeah, you didn't, I hadn't introduced, by the time I finished teaching the secondary LTP, I hadn't introduced the progressive exam. Would you like to introduce the secondary one? 
graduates to the concept of the progressive exam? Oh, you're far more better placed at describing it than I am. But from from my memory mm-hmm. <laughs> and what I recall of it, it was essentially four mini assessments where we would undertake a, a degree of um, um, reading and preparation and learning through obviously the literature and then also face-to-face um, um lecturing uh, and then we go away reflect on it look at uh, the practice within the, the primary schools that we were doing placements in as well um, and then write a piece uh, and then there was the second opportunity to come back to that and look at how it linked to other areas of, that was the final of development yeah. Yeah, exactly in yeah, the final assignment well what I did was I lectured okay you were supposed to have been doing your reading lectured and then the next exposure was your tutes where you were or seminars or whatever we called it that week where you were looking at the material, so that's the or very soon afterwards, like Ebbinghaus says, and then you had your progressive exams. I used to give them, I used to release an exam exam question. When I inherited LTP primary and had an exam, and I thought, I want to mark exam papers. I don't think so. Um, <laughs> or, but I had used progressive exam in other, in other places where I taught. So people would be given, it was a vignette, and these were all real vignettes. Okay. And a couple of short questions to answer. So it was only about 400 words long, where they had to pick out from the last couple of weeks, you know, appropriate theories or whatever. So that's kind of like the third heavy grade exposure to it. Um, but then the final uh, assessment was revisiting the progressive exam and doing things with them. Sorry, it was three different areas. Um yeah, that were the most hard hitting for us, I think, from memory. Yeah, and how, I think how you might your understanding might have changed Correct, as a result yeah. of you. Yeah, and yeah, their so. interrelation as well. So constant, constantly revisiting stuff. I actually had somebody criticise me for mentioning in a lecture, reminding people in lectures what we'd done the week before, and I thought, you are an idiot. Get out of teaching now. Actually, I didn't say. That. I only thought things people find to complain about. But so in my own practice, that's how I did it. So one of the things that you could be thinking about in your own practice is how do I take advantage of what Ebbinghaus taught us about, present it, then go in hard really soon, and then, you know, then you can leave it. And the retrieval, the whole idea of retrieval practice is that being forced to remember stuff not only reinforces the learning, it also helps people to understand what they've learned better. So that's where doing an assignment or doing a, a test or something like that. You can think about what's appropriate in your subjects areas and in your age ranges that you're teaching about how you would go about this. And the interleaving thing is that instead of having, um, I don't know, it's, it's easiest to illustrate using subjects like maths and physics and things like that, instead of having a whole set of exercises that are all about Newton's second law or something, what you do is you slip other things in there so people are sort of forced to think about not just getting to some kind of groove and go bang, 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 but forced to think about what the appropriate technique or whatever to use is this in. So that's been shown to be very powerful in helping people to learn as well. Because if it's all Norton's Newton's second law or something, it's, it's easy just to get into a kind of groove, you know, without. But when you're having to stop and think and do something else, so when we're talking about what we're trying to get children to learn or young adults to learn, it is about um, the timing of, of when you 
um, approach things direct, mm. so direct instruction, and then also through investigations and 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 yeah, timing these appropriately to the needs of the student. Yeah, because um, you know, once people have been taught something, then the next the next thing that they can do is that they can then try to apply it for some reason. You know, you've learnt this stuff, which is what the progressive exams were about. You've learnt this stuff, apply what you've learnt to understand this um, this particular vignette from actual real schools. Terrifying, weren't they? Yeah, they were slightly terrifying at times, some of the situations. But having experienced the real life, it's, you know, it's, it's good preparation. <laughs> you've seen a few like that yourself. And one of the things I did with those, because I know that inevitably with novice teachers, Somebody disliked the word novice too. Oh, God. Um, novice teachers, um, you're seeing yourself as being at the mercy of the classroom and the kids in it. And you're, you're the one that things are happening to and you're terrified how to make it not happen, you know. So people are very concerned with classroom management and they're very concerned with getting the kids under control so bad stuff doesn't happen. The reason that I used those vignettes were they were they weren't what I just said, were they? They weren't about things being done to teachers. They were about teachers doing things to kids, like the infamous Mr. Baker, who got no better, I have to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> he just kept going downhill. Go back and look up Mr. Baker and refresh myself. After reading your articles, I went back to my primary classroom and did the classic knee-jerk reaction of trying to introduce some of these things, and I'm, I'd be interested to get your thoughts. Um, I think the majority, everyone else here is secondary education, but I think it might be interesting to see where I've started in primary and then maybe how this can be built on mm-hmm. um, in developing an understanding of meta-memory um, in children's minds. Mm-hmm. So I essentially introduced them to this picture, which is a picture of a, a kind of a, a, I don't know, how would you describe this, a map of a brain with a varying degree of circles of different sizes with little lines that connect the circles mm. um, in the shape of a brain. And I started off by asking the children, you know, what does this represent? And the things that they came up with is obviously there's things that are connected in your brain. You make connections and they're familiar with making connections through reading comprehension strategies. Mm-hmm. They talked about things like, you know, things that are big and really important in your life. You, you know, that's, that's quite significant through the tiny little things. And then the other key thing that they talked about was how sometimes things had to get closer to the middle and that's deeper inside your brain. Mm. So then we were touching on long-term memory and mm. compared to working memory, which is around the periphery and things bounce in and out. So I came up with lots of really interesting conversations. And then I kind of have left it now at the point having had essentially just an open discussion Mm. um, with what we're going to do is every time they make a connection between a learning area, so not within a learning area but across learning areas, I colour in one of the little lines. And I've got to admit, this idea didn't actually come from me. It came from one of my colleagues. I've got to give him recognition for that. Mm. Yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at. And I'd be interested to get your feedback on where I could take this and if I've completely in- induced a multiple misconceptions? No, I don't think so. I mean, one of the, the strategies that good learners use is always trying to relate back what they, they're learning to what they know. So, yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Phew. <laughs> Lucky. Because <laughs> yeah. the sort of strategies, yeah, the sort of strategies that that helped the students that were interviewed for this little study we did. Mm. It wasn't your year. No, we didn't do it. I didn't do it in the first year. I did it. Okay. Yeah, you were in the first year of LTP. 
learners, teachers and pedagogy. Of course, we say learners first because we're all kind of, I don't know, I'm not going down that track. Learners are the centre, yeah, right, okay. Where was I? Yeah, so one of the things that they, the people, that the good students or the successful students did was to do things like draw diagrams and maps where they linked ideas together and, Hmm. um, yeah, so they used those sorts of things where they, you know, kind of mind mappy type things of how things link together. But they, it, they didn't just do what the not good students did, which was basically just try to read the same stuff over and over and over, and so some of it stuck long enough for the test or whatever. Hmm. Which is that rehearsal strategy that everybody figures out sooner or later. It was about engaging with the meaning of the thing, you know. Meaning, I know meaning's a little bit woolly in this area, but it's you know how this connects to what you already know, what the consequences are, how I can use this for my own purposes, how this is important, um, why this is whatever. But you asked that question, no, was it you? Yeah, it was based on a, a practice guide by the in- Institute for Education Studies, I think it is, on um, organising instruction for success or something like that. And the seventh recommendation following like retrieval of retrieval practice and interleaving, et cetera, et cetera, was question for deep understanding or something like that. And and I and I tweeted about it and a couple of people replied and I was like, I still don't exactly know what we mean by questioning for deep understanding. And you came up with this top down, bottom up answer. About top down, bottom up, that's what I translated it into. Yeah. It, was it David Didow that had a spaz about um, top about depth? Wrote a long piece about why depth is a, a useless. Haven't seen that recently, but probably I would have put it up on the Facebook group. It's the kind of you know, it's not obviously completely um, applicable to teaching. It's more you know when you want to lay back and think about teaching <laughs> um, type of stuff. But he had a problem with the whole idea of depth as a. As a concept, I can't remember the fine details of his um, his, his argument about why, why depth is a problematic thing. What do you think about depth? Um, got to think deeply about it for a second. I got to. Well, I don't know. What does it? What does depth bring up in people's minds? You know, I'm a teacher. I turn the questions back on the class. I mean, one of the mantras at our school is is more about its depth, not breadth. And my understanding is that not to race upwards through the curriculum but get a deeper conceptual understanding of the concepts and those connections happening between areas. And actually Jan van Driel in his Dean's Lecture last night talked about that and talked about the the current curriculum. He contrasted science textbooks from the 1920s with those from today and said, you know, the accumulation of human knowledge that's kind of made its way into modern-day textbooks has displaced some of the depth. And I think he was talking about science instruction being driven by questions and probably well, as well as a bit of historical context of the findings and how some of that's been moved out. So perhaps that's what we could think of as depth, uh, some contextual information and, and having questions drive the learning uh, rather than, I'm trying to say, talk about depth without saying deeper, um, <laughs> rather than you know, mile-wide-inch-thick kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, making, um, yeah, the whole inch inch deep and a mile-wide idea of the curriculum versus 
addressing some very key things um, in much more detail. Certainly very important because galloping through doesn't allow you to really get to know something well enough. Um, so, yeah, so, so David didn't like the depth word. That was when he, I think he was having a swing at Hattie, wasn't he? I can't remember. Maybe he did write a post about Hattie recently. Yeah, that was really very entertaining. I'll tell you, I have to turn the microphone off and I'll tell you something about that. It's quite funny, but anyway. All right, we'll, we'll leave that That's, one for later. Leave that one for uh, later. Maybe another thing to do with depth is what Anthony was talking about before, and that's to do with connections and how many things you're able to make connections to from this new bit of information. Yeah, well, it's more like complexity than depth, isn't it? I mean, the funny thing about the brain is that actually learning starts way down deep inside in the hippocampus. And as it gets more whatever, it actually moves out to the close to the surface. So it's actually, in terms of the physical reality of the thing. It is deeper. It, it, no, it's not. It's more shallow because oh. this, it, it goes up here into your cerebral cortex. Oh, so the learning starts. It starts yep, in the hippocampus and, you know, as it gets. I was just going to say, yeah, because the human brain's like the outer part of the brain, isn't it? And the mammalian and the reptilian brain is the deepest part of your brain. Yeah, that's right. But the hippocampus is very, remember that one? Hippocampus. I like the hippocampus. Hippocampus is right down in, in the middle of the brain, and that's actually where learning gets started. So, so it starts in the depths of the brain and moves and gets shallower, ends up up here in your cerebral cortex. Oh, well, it depends what it is. It's like, it's depending on what memory, sort of memory we're talking about. I guess I was just thinking about what defines depth for me in my subjects, and it's, I think it's not just knowing discrete pieces of information, but perhaps understanding underlying principles mm. that these discrete pieces of information are just reflections of a deeper principle and perhaps then you know can they even then look at another situation that you haven't shown them and apply the same principle generalizing yeah 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 i mean i'm going to sort of say i mean what depth means i think is this fluent retrieval that's what you really mean once you've learned something really well you, f you retrieve it very fluently and easily when you still, because remember the difference between recognition and recall, there's something that's worth teaching your students. When you're first learning something, if you see it written down, you'll recognize it as something you've encountered before, but you've got to learn it a whole lot better before you can voluntarily recall it. So I would say depth is almost about fluent recall of information, and that requires practice, you know, it requires all that sort of stuff. See, I'm thinking about primary school maths and how there's a lot of kids in the junior years who come in with the facts and the fluency of maybe times tables, which is not what really we need to, like, it's not what we should be teaching in sort of prep one, two, till they've got that deep understanding and those, the well, understanding, problem solving skills, reasoning skills. And so that's where I thought the depth was. But based on that definition, if they can tell me what five times five is, then that's deep recall. Um, it's fluent recall. Yeah, fluent yeah. recall. Okay. And again, looking at the Bloom's taxonomy thing, in fact, more complicated stuff's higher up. So it's the depth in that is actually the knowledge and understanding. Although I think David Dido's had a bit of a tantrum about what's the difference between knowledge and understanding? Can you really know something without simultaneously understanding it? Well, I suppose you can parrot stuff, you know, but... So I suppose understanding is part of the, the thing as well. It's not just, again, going back to those students who were doing well and who weren't doing well. Basically, 
they were learning for understanding so that they knew not just the surface facts of this stuff, but they could use it, apply it. Mm. Um, I really appreciated your um, image that you showed, Anthony, and I was wondering whether um, you have any other images that you think might be compelling for English as an additional language no. students or even games because that's – I'm actually – I'm actually a trained ESL teacher, so I can come and do your job for you. Oh, well, do you have any? <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing about learning any language, and you, some of you know I'm teaching myself German at the moment. It was useful at the film festival last night. The movie was German. The self-criticism of the bourgeois dog, it was fantastic. I loved it. Laughed so hard. <laughs> anyway, I'll talk about that later. The thing about language is really, 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 really repetition, 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 repetition. And all of these principles we've talked about really apply. So you have your vocab and all that kind of thing, and you've got to hit it hard, but you've got to keep going back. So, you know, you might do, I don't know, body bits or something, but you've then got to visit that, revisit that in a couple of weeks, you know, so you've always got to be interleaving what you're doing, you know, so that you are teaching. Have you got a, a textbook? Have you, what have you got? Oh, no, I think my question was more just about teaching meta memory. Ah, so there I was, visual. teaching you how to teach yourself. Sorry. <laughs> so, did I say I'm a trained ESL? Yes, I am a trained ESL. I guess, yeah, kind of, because I thought that image could be really powerful for helping them to think about how their brain works and how you know, connections are formed in their brains. Yeah. I just was wondering whether you had any other ideas in teaching meta memory to young children and maybe children who don't have the same kind of vocabulary that would help them understand this. I think teaching teaching the stuff about it's really difficult and you've just got to keep practicing. You've got to really work your brain quite hard. You've got to be practicing all the time. You've got to do a little bit every day and get them to think about opportunities that they might have where they can use what they're learning. Um, you know, where would this be useful? How could you use this? Um, but it's teaching a language is just plain hard work. There's not a lot of sexy stuff in it. It's really hard work. Beth's best question about um, students with limited vocab, et cetera, um, is related to one I had tabled, which was how important is the explicit vocab of of the meta memory, for example, should we be teaching students about their visuospatial sketchpad and their phonological loop? No, not that, not in that depth. Not unless they're older and they're interested. I mean, the most important stuff is that you know that stuff about working memory is limited. Attention is important. It requires practice to get stuff out of your working memory into your long term memory. It's going to get in there quicker if you try, if you actually think about the meaning of, of what you're learning and how it relates to what you already know, all that kind of stuff. And don't forget the stuff to do with the emotion of memory. Do people have beliefs about memory? They have feelings about memory. You would not believe that there are kids out there, large numbers of them, who don't know if you try harder, you do better. Incredible, but true. And so, you know, talking to kids, how do they feel? Don't get too touchy-feely, but, you know, how, what kind of beliefs they've got about their memory, what helps them, what doesn't help them, just making them aware of what they've got and then moving that on. When I, when I was reading about this in the articles, I made strong connections to how this relates to, I guess, growth mindset as well and an understanding mm. of effort can lead to achievement and not giving up and understanding that you... But you've got to have skills. Yeah, yeah, well, that's true as well. You're just trying harder doesn't work. It's got to be 
It's got to be intelligent, what I'm calling intelligent effort. You know, you've got to go sit down for a study session with the idea that by the end of the study session, you're going to know this better. So that's part of the metacognitive stuff. It's having the strategies alongside yeah, the effort. Goal setting, you know, what is the per- point and purpose of what am I, what's this bit of study about? Well, I'm going to know this better. How am I going to know that I know this better? Well, self-testing is an obvious thing. Hmm. Teaching them about that um, reading comprehension, things like stopping and interrogating, you know, have my eyes just been flicking over the, hmm. the lines or what have, you know, what have I learnt from reading this bit that relates to what I'm trying to do, you know, always self-testing, checking for understanding, seeing whether they're moving forward in the direction of actually learning what they, they want to learn or what they have to learn. Um, I had another question. I was curious um, what your attitude is towards mindfulness and using that as a technique to help gain students' attention or help them strengthen their attention because that's quite a fad at the moment. And It's an enormous fad. And there's actually been a little bit of stuff that says be careful in the use of it because it can rebound on people. People can end up with depression. Could you elaborate on that? Explain. No, I just, well, I can find something and put it on the Facebook page. But, you know, it's a little bit scary to a registered psychologist that people are being encouraged to use what are really therapeutic techniques without necessarily the full suite of skills to manage them. And mindfulness has been shown to have problems. Some people have problems. Some people become depressed. This is very interesting because in episode eight, uh, we had Tom Brunzel along um, talking oh, yeah, about trauma-informed positive education, and and I asked him about mindfulness, and I and I talked about a meta study that had said it, you know, it was relatively inconclusive and stuff. And what he said, well, he, he quoted something from Martin Seligman, which was that you never know when this is going to be a benefit to people. You know, you might teach them mindfulness today, um, but. And that might not improve, you know, their academic achievement today or, or this year. Mm. It might not improve their behaviour today or this year, but maybe when they're 30 and they're having a midlife crisis, mm. that's when they pull out their toolbox, from their toolbox, this mindfulness kind of technique. When they're 30, they would have forgotten it if they hadn't been practising it. The thing is that you don't know what people have got in their heads. And by inviting people to become exquisitely aware of what they've got in their heads you are putting some people at risk. I mean, some people are just keeping stuff just out of awareness so they can manage. Mm-hmm. Right? It's interesting. And, they, you know, and if something starts cups floating up into awareness that's really tricky, well, you know, what are you going to do about it? Mm. And I do have a, a, a very close friend who um, I've done a, a bit of meditation with and for them it's a very has to be a very controlled environment yeah. and very short kind of lengths of time because stuff does come up for them well, then, in that way. So, it's inter- interesting to hear you. And, and we'll track down a reference and I'll, and I'll put it in the show notes. I'm thinking about where we're at in the in in the education discussion at the moment, but I think this I think this does relate back because in a lot of ways I don't think a, f- a phrase you used there was something along the lines of muddling around in the in the mess of your own subconscious or something like that, um, or waiting around in there. In a lot of ways, I don't think that's what meditation is about. I think mindfulness meditation in particular is about noticing the thoughts that are happening, accepting them, and kind of just being okay with that. There was an article 
that I a blog post I wrote a couple of years ago, something called like anxiety in white bears or something, and it was talking about a research study that was exploring how students deal with anxiety at test time and what the best thing for them to do is. And they contrasted two approaches. One was students trying to ignore the anxious feelings and the other was students accepting that they have anxious feelings and kind of just being like, yep, okay, I'm anxious. That's pretty natural. Sure, let's just deal with this. Let's just do this test now. And, and the reason why it was white bears is because you say, don't think of a white bear and you're thinking of a white bear. So, I think that, I don't know, for me and for my own personal experience, maybe there is a role, but it sounds like it is a, it is a complex issue. Um, I, was, I was just thinking that uh, my question actually goes back a little bit to almost, almost, almost my long-term memory now. Um, but uh, maybe to climb out a bit of the deep darkness of our subconsciousness. Um, I was thinking more uh, at the moment I've been looking a lot at um, the idea of um, mathematics and how students often you know, and teachers and the curriculum really um, compartmentalize things so um, you know you finish a topic it's done and you won't might not see it until you know the next year and um, and you talked a little bit about um, you know the idea of you know not just making signposting and having this is about Newton's first law and um, really you know giving students the opportunity to be able to think about you know what what um, skill set am I going to use or what do I need to use what do I know mm-hmm. for me immediately I guess um, that makes me think about uh, extending students who maybe have that deeper memory um, but I have been looking at um, still trying to give other students who maybe don't really have that deeper memory the opportunity do you think that that Yes, finally get to the question. Do you think that there is a bit of a danger with interrupting or displacing that procedural or that how-to memory for students who don't have that deep memory with the concepts? Um, well, that's a tricky one, isn't it? I don't know about displacing. I mean, every classroom is a, you know, full of kids all over the place in terms of ability and knowledge and so forth. So it, it really is really tricky. Have you got any suggestions as an exemplary maths teacher, Ollie? I mean, you basically have to have at all times materials prepared for everybody so the kids are working through this stuff. Differentiation, it's got to be. But it's never a matter of dumbing down the content. It's always a matter of finding ways to make the explanations clearer. Okay. So you never dumb down what you're giving the kids that aren't performing as well in your class. You're finding ways to explain that stuff in ways that make sense to them. But you've just always got to have a battery of stuff that goes right through here, right up to the kids that kids work through. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. Well, plainly, if you've got kids who just aren't keeping up, they're going to need some extra work put in, you know, to get them up to scratch. Maybe go to France because in France – Teachers regard their job as getting everybody, moving everybody up together. Write that down. And obviously, here's go to France. Tell your principal, you need to be paid to go to France. Because, you know, one of the things, you know, that if you think that your job is teaching everybody the same stuff and moving them all up, 
you actually are quite good at it. If you look at the kind of dispersion in scores, uh, you know, achievement scores in French students, much narrower. Um, in countries where we talk about differentiation a lot, much bigger spread. Because what differentiation can do, if you're not careful, it can reproduce the inequalities that kids bring into the classroom with you. But if you think your job is to get everybody from A to B, you know, as much as possible, everybody from A to B, then you approach it differently than if you're kind of like differentiating a lot. When I ask you to define, well, when you've, you've mentioned LTP a bit, and, uh, and I asked you before to explain that acronym, um, learners, teachers, pedagogy, and you said, oh, because for some reason we think we need to put the learners first. There was a, a quote in one of your articles that you nominated that I thought could be a cause of attention for some readers. And that quote was as follows. Here it is. Consider whether giving your children a free choice of a topic is a cop-out and whether you ought to be making the learning decisions yourself. That goes against what a lot of teachers would see as, as student voice or developing students as teachers of their own learners and, and things like that. So I, I just thought I'd, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that. You know, you're there, if you don't teach them foundational academic knowledge, no one else will. Teachers are the only people whose job it is to teach students, kids, foundational academic knowledge. You've got to do it. And this idea about you really need – what you need to do is to read Graham Nuttall's last book, the one he died part of the way through writing. Brilliant book. When you give the kids a free choice, basically what they do is they'll pick what they know about already and just rehash what they already know, okay? Or they'll have their poor bloody mother at home doing her third assignment on the sea because the, th- the three older kids went to the same school and when they hit year four, they had an assignment. They had a project on the sea. That was it. The sea. You're not that, you're not that mother, are you? Go off. Oh, wow. I am that mother. Well, because Meg got, just got so freaked out because she used to not let me do it and she used to do it herself. So she used to get really crappy marks and the other kids used to get good marks because their mothers did it. Uh, so this is what you are talking about before when you said students of teachers do better in PISA. Well, it's also because they're, they're taught the language of, of, of schooling and they're taught the conventions of schooling and they're taught how to think like, you know, A section of the interview here has been redacted as it names some programs in a way that wasn't necessary to publicly publish. In general terms, the discussion continued on the topic of differentiation and student-directed projects with Catherine suggesting two main points. The first point being that assessment programs need to be very careful when assessing different students on different projects, as this reduces the validity and reliability of assessments. Secondly, Allowing students to choose their own topics of exploration can lead to higher achieving students choosing more challenging topics, such as Catherine's daughter who did a school project on Idarians, an animal I'd never heard of before, and lower achieving students choosing less challenging topics in a way that tends to exacerbate pre-existing achievement gaps. We jump back into the interview at the point where Catherine puts one program forward, Kieran Egan's Learning in Depth program, as a viable alternative for teachers who would like to support students in project work. As a brief introduction, the following description of LID is taken from Kieran Egan's website. Learning in depth is a simple though radical innovation in curriculum and instruction designed to ensure that all students become experts about something during their school years. Each child is given a particular topic to learn through her or his whole school career, in addition to the usual curriculum, and this builds a personal portfolio of the topic. 
To the surprise of many, children usually take to the program with great enthusiasm. Within a few months, LID begins to transform their experience as learners. Their program usually takes about an hour per week, with students working outside school time increasingly. So that's from the, the website, and so that's a little bit about the program, and here we jump straight back into the ERRS episode, where Catherine Scott is talking about LID. Do you remember when I taught you about learning in depth? Yep, Kieran Egan. If you want kids in control of their learning in a really, really important way, do LID. So, I'll exp- okay, I'll and because it, with, with learning in depth where students are in very, very early years given a topic or they select from a restricted range of topics and they become increasingly more expert at that topic as their education goes on, yeah. is that better because uh, the, the selection of topics are more deep, like with more care selected at the start, therefore, you know, apples and cats and whatever oh, else they can level, be yeah. are at the similar level. Is that why it's better? I'm, no, I'm one of Kieran's, un, um, one of his unusual suspects, he calls us. And when he, he talked to me right at the start, I said, these are the problems. Oh, you take, that, take that off. It sounds like bragging. But one of the things about, Kieran says, one of the advantages of the learning in depth thing is it teaches kids the structure of knowledge. You know, that sort of stuff I was talking about at the top down, bottom up. By doing their own investigations about their limited topic – you know, apples or dust or whatever, it actually come to learn about the structure of knowledge. Mm. So if you want kids to have something that's theirs, and this is, Kieran said, the, the big problem is your kid gets apples as a topic and the next day she comes in with a thumb drive with 15 gigabytes of apple stuff dad's downloaded off the web. But, yeah, but, you know, we don't want that. But... Learning in depth is is a wonderful thing. I and you know I'm 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 being contrarian because because that's helpful to advance the discussion. I think uh, and I know there are some listeners uh, as I was trying to say before that would say yeah, but why should we stop Susie from researching those things starting with N for whose name I've forgotten already? And it doesn't actually start with N. It's one of those ones that's got a silent letter. Oh, there you go. So you're never going to be able to find it. You know, what's the problem with her researching that and the other student researching puppies? If one, that's what they want to re- uh, research and two, that is, a, a you know, a way of self-differentiating. I know many people listening will be asking that question, well, Catherine. The, so, why is that well, a problem? Well, the thing is that Susie already had an advantage, okay? And the kid who's going to do puppy dogs and bring in some kind of cute picture of the puppy and, you know, my cat's breath smells like cat food or whatever. Yes, that is Ralph. Um, the The problem is that it's that thing where I talked about where you are you are magnifying the differences that kids bring into the classroom. With it's all very fun to have some kind of frivolous thing going on on the side, but if it's taking away from teaching fundamental found and remember the importance of foundational knowledge, background knowledge, you know the the thing that Susanna's got by. Buck, the bucket load is background knowledge. And she's up against some poor little kid, you know, who's got no background knowledge. So she's getting a PhD in biology, you know, for the hell of it while still in high school. But this other little kid not being given the kind of stuff that would bring him or her up to the sort of level. I mean, Susanna's got all the advantages, really. 
it's it's not it's not it's great that she can do Nidarians, but the other little kids who don't have the sort of advantages, who didn't her father's a astronomer, she grew up in a bloody observatory. She could identify the planets when she was three. This is oh, this is because of the advantages that she's got. So it's it's not about differentiation through choice. It's about differentiation through individual needs and what they're ready to learn as opposed to yeah. You don't it, – it is an absolutely classic example of where the, the haves are getting more and those without, those that have got less are getting less because their learning opportunities are being taken up with, you know, stuff that isn't actually helping them to learn their fundamental background knowledge that they're not bringing through the door because – thanks for coming, Beth – because they don't have the kind of family, you know, they don't have the kind of family where they're going to, you know, come through the door with all that. This is your, 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 their last chance to learn it. If you're not teaching it to them, they're never. That's what I meant. You're the only people in the world whose job it is to teach people that academic type of knowledge. If you're not actually teaching it to them, they they're done. They're never going to learn it. Sure, and I might just tie this up with something that Daniel William talks about in his book. Why students don't like school. He talks about how the essentially knowledge is like money. The more money you have, the more interest you can earn on that money, and the more knowledge you have, the easier it is to learn because you've actually got more anchors yep. in more disciplines, so you can make the connections and tie things together. And so I, de- I think definitely um, you make some fantastic points there. Yeah. So I mean, that's what I just hate to see kids' time being wasted. I was like, I'm not worried about my kids. They're all grown ups now, so. But I'm, you know, worried about those kids who come through the door who can't identify anything, let alone Mars, you know, because they've never had that kind of experience. They've never had those conversations with the parents. You know, they never had the opportunities to learn. It's simply not fair. Not fair. Not fair. Not fair. So, Catherine, mm. what advice would you give if you had a tweet? A tweet to do it. What advice would you give to your first-year teacher self? My first-year teacher self, I'd just say you're on the right track. I'm sorry, but it's true. You know, I had a real feel for teaching because I had a real feel for kids. I had a real sympathetic understanding of kids. That was very, very important because I was able to teach those kids no one else, you know, had to date because I was, oh, it's terrible. It's in Sydney last week. It's longer than a tweet now, Catherine. Oh, no, no, this is, this is an anecdote. <laughs> I went to the Archibald exhibition, okay, because I went to the Archibald. And I liked it because I'm an art teacher and amateur artist and all that kind of stuff. I go there and here's all these little kids. They were their teachers. And they're standing in front of this picture. Having a look. Craning their heads. And I said, look, okay, it's called Therefore I Am, okay? Famous philosopher once said, I think, therefore I am. I know I'm real and I know I'm alive because I think. You can't see thoughts, can you? But those lines around his head, they represent the thoughts. And those words written on his chest, they're what he's thinking and that's making him real. See, they're on, you can see his skeleton through his flesh and they're the, when those words are making him real, that's what he's thinking and that's what's making him. That's why it looks... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I thought... Oh, I've taken over the excursions. Can't help it. Used to spend a lot of time in the art gallery trying to explain art to kids. Fifteen-year-old boys, God help me. Hmm. 
So you are you are a bit of a generalist, generalist, and you've self branded mm. uh, yourself as that. So Renaissance woman. I'm a rena- well. I don't have. I don't really have a specialty in psychology. What I do is I keep a track of evolutionary psychology. So I don't bother with that rubbish. But um, you know, I keep as much as possible across all the specialties in psychology, which is good because I can make those connections and see stuff that other people might not see. Um. So in in terms of that, what is your information diet? What what do you who number one who do you follow um, in a systematic manner? Also, where do you go to get quality info on this stuff? Uh, uh, what's your information diet? Um, well, I'm still a member of the Australian Psychological Society, and I'm a member of the American Psychological Association, American Psychological Association (APA). Particularly good. Lots of publications. They they have a whole division. They have these, write it up, the division. Um, they have a whole division on teaching, Division 21. So massive amounts of really good stuff. And they, they send out publications, but there are also electronic newsletters that come out. APS, Australian Psychological Society, not quite so, well, nowhere near as good actually, but APA is a gold mine of information. I also have newsletters that pop into my you know, British Psychological Society, which I'm not a member of, but I'm on their newsletter list, so I get stuff that comes in all the time. There's a whole lot of other science um, newsletters, electronic science newsletters that pop into the email every day. Um, yeah, and I follow Daniel Willingham. I follow um, David Didow, Tom Bennett, and a few other things, but yeah. I noticed that Scott Barry Kaufman's in the building. Yeah, he'll be talking here tomorrow night. Uh, and finally, Catherine, any last calls to action, things that you would like for the listeners to go away and do after listening to this podcast? Well, I think keep in mind that their responsibility is an enormous one. And it's not those kids like Susanna who come with all the advantages. It's the kids that don't have the advantages. And you're their last chance to learn some really solid, useful information about the world and how it works. You're their last chance. Okay. Go forth and teach. Because, yeah, who knows what they're going to get after you in terms of teaching. Dr. Catherine Scott, thank you so much for being here and the very wide-ranging discussion this evening. Yes, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Catherine Scott. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at www.ollilovell.com forward slash podcast. And if you did enjoy this episode, I'd love for you to share it with your friends and colleagues. If you've really been enjoying the ERRR podcast, I'd love for you to consider supporting its production through Patreon. Patreon is a website that enables podcast listeners to make a small financial contribution, even as small as a dollar per month, to support the ongoing production of that show. On top of the time I spend putting together the ERRR, I've also been paying, out of my own pocket, an audio engineer every episode to try to ensure that the finished product that you received is of the highest possible quality. If you are an ongoing listener and fan of the ERRR, then please consider making a small monthly contribution to help me cover these costs. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash ERRR, that's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to explore the possibility of supporting the show. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.